If at some point the, this week you were wondering as to the state of higher Christian education, I drove to Fort Worth to guest teach in a class this past week. And if you're wondering about the dire straits of that, I drove to a class this past week. To teach, it was very odd to sit in a classroom that I at one point had sat in as a student. And whenever one goes to Fort Worth, the great north, you do what you do, you eat clam chowder and such. <laughs> I arrived on campus, I checked in at the, at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Center Conference Center. It was so isolated that I had to make a phone call to the campus police department and they came and they let me in. He met me with a swipey key. That's the technical term for it. There was no one there. I, I go into the hotel and I look around and no one is in the entire building. This place sleeps five, six hundred people. No one is there. I, I was in a room and I just started thinking as one does when they are in a situation like this. What would happen if something happened here? I am all alone. I am all alone. No one is in this entire facility. It's just me. There are no snacks. There are no bottles of water. I am all alone. What if we went a step further? What if rather than being all alone, I had been abandoned? There in that building, left to my own devices, and all the people in my life who claimed to care about me had forsaken me, overlooked me, forgotten about me. What if we take yet another step? Not only am I there all alone, abandoned and forsaken, beyond even that, what if everyone on the campus was against me? What if I was an enemy of the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary? What if I were an enemy of the entire city of Fort Worth? What if I were an enemy of the state of Texas? What if I were an enemy of the nation? What if I was abandoned, alone, isolated, and marked? That's where we meet Jesus in Mark chapter 15. Picking up in verse 16. If you weren't with us last week, just a drop in. Last week, Jesus was... There was a decision made. The people chose Barabbas over Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with Barabbas, he was an insurrectionist traitor against the nation of Rome. Pilate stood him in front of the people and said, Pick which one do you want? Do you want the insurrectionist who murdered and killed? Or do you want this Jesus? Give us Barabbas. What should we do with Jesus? Crucify him. Verse 16. The soldiers, they led Jesus away into the palace. That's the governor's residence. They called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and they were spitting on him. 
getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and they put his clothes on him. They let him out to crucify him. Uh, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He, he was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. The crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him. Shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one that would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him again among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until the three in the afternoon. And at three... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered it to him to drink and he said and said let's see if Elijah comes to take him down Jesus let out a loud cry and he breathed his last then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw that the way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God Jesus was abandoned for you to be united with God that's the whole of today's text if we were going to give you a sermon in a sentence it would be Jesus was abandoned for you to be united with God. There's a poetic understanding of the notion of apocalypse, a word that we've come across more often than not in the last few years. And the idea is that it's where heaven and earth meet. For us as believers in Jesus and we consider what it means... That's actually what's taking place in the person of Jesus because Jesus is where heaven and where earth meet. He's where God's come together. He's brought these things together so that we could see who He is and what He's like. And for us to be part of that, 
for us to be united with all of the good that God will do for forever on top of forever, Jesus had to be abandoned. It doesn't start here. In chapter, four, in chapter 14, verse 43, we see that Judas, familiar with him, even if you are not a regular church attender, you may have heard the name of Judas. He had betrayed Jesus. Another one of his followers, Jesus, at, when he was arrested in the garden, uh, runs away naked, leaving Jesus completely abandoned and alone. In 1465, the Sanhedrin, they spit upon Jesus. In chapter 15, the crowd calls out for the death of Jesus. Pilate has Jesus scourged in these first few verses that we read today. The, the guards are going to sarcastically mock Jesus as the supposed king of Israel. Those who passed by the scene of the death of Jesus, they mocked him, they taunted him. The chief priests and the scribes, they also joined together in this mocking, taunting. Even though those, who, even those men who were on the crosses next to him were taunting Jesus. Mark does not even refer to the fact that one of them would turn to Jesus for hope. He wants us to see the aloneness of Jesus. The abandonment of Jesus. Jesus has been forgotten. To be scourged means that Jesus was tied to a post and he was beaten with a leather whip that had pieces of bone and metal that would tear the skin from his body. Scourging itself was sometimes fatal, but, but not here. We look to the text and we see that Jesus, the soldiers led him away to the palace. And when they lead Jesus away to the palace, they call the entirety of the company together. That, that phrasing lets us know they bring in others. It's not just a few. Let's bring in a whole group of people to do this. And they began to dress Jesus in purple. And they took to, uh, briars and formed a crown to put around the, the head of Jesus. They beat him with something that resembled a scepter. Such a unique thing to consider in and of itself. Something that none of us would ever want to watch or even observe. But beyond that, and even bigger than that, is for us to look and see what they're in actuality doing. The, the words say that they did this over and over and over again. So while we may read the text and see this happens and then this happens and then this happens, in reality this is happening cyclically. Over and over and over again, they were finding joy and pleasure in the beating and maiming of Jesus. The clothing was intended to reflect a king, but they don't know a lot about Jewish kings. The way that they dressed him was intended to reflect the way that Caesar would be dressed. That he would wear a purple robe and a purple wreath while he carried a scepter, the one that they happened to be beating him with, according to Matthew. When they were looking at this Jesus, there was frustration for them because these men, their entire lives, were dedicated to holding down rebellions, to dealing with insurrections. And for the whole of their lives, they have been dealing with these various Jewish upstarts who would try to undo what was actually taking place in Rome. So they would take out their frustrations on this Jesus. They were mocking the very idea that anyone could usurp the power of the nation of Rome. Beyond that, as they mocked Jesus, unbeknownst to the Jewish leaders, they're mocking them as well. Because the last thing they would want Jesus to be declared was the king of the Jews. Yet here they were 
trying to say that. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man, verse 21, from the country to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, father of Alexander and Rufus. If you are unfamiliar with uh, the gospel writer's attempts of letting us know certain things, Mark writes this gospel years removed from the days uh, when this actually took place. He, he gives us an idea as to who this Messiah was, recounting, recounting for all of us and for those, his first century hearers, what it would really mean to know the good news of this Jesus. And when he makes reference to these names, Alexander and Rufus, one of those got a better draw than the other. But when he makes reference to this, there's belief that these, these are names that we are intended to remember. Names that we were intended to know. Because there were men named this who would eventually lead the church. There is a belief that he is giving us breadcrumbs as to what the church would become. In attempting to keep with this theme of mockery, they offered Jesus wine. We actually see that in verse 23. They brought, verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's a place of death. You don't decorate things to be lively with skulls. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he, he did not take it. For much of my life, as I have read and encountered when Scripture talks about the notion of taking this wine and attempting to give Jesus wine, I have thought it to be a, a sign or a show of relief. Let's relieve his pain. That's not what's happening. When you have this Roman Empire, the... <laughs> The whole of it, the whole of this punishment, the whole of this torture was meant to reflect what was taking place with Rome and with the way that you would celebrate a Caesar. And Caesars would drink wine because Caesars were the kings and if we give him this, we can just mock him some more. Crucifixion was not done off the beaten path. You would never do it behind our church. That's a beaten path. You would do it in the middle of town where everyone could see. It took place near major roads because the Romans wanted the most people they could ever get to be moved to fear and most people they wanted most people to see. If they see this, they will not act in opposition to us. They crucified him and they divided his clothes, verse 24. Casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now, if it was nine in the morning when they crucified him, the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. That's the placard. That's the name. They crucified him with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Such a unique thing even to read that we would put him between two people. And again, for the majority of my life, when I've read about these criminals and I've read about Barabbas, I have thought them to be insulated, isolated characters. Isolated figures in the story. I thought them to be murderers and robbers who were just off the beaten path. In actuality, most of the belief is that they have tried to rebel against Rome and you have these two men and Barabbas should be in the middle, yet Jesus is in that place. Not just that place, he's in your place. 
He's in the place that all of us deserve, that because of our sinful rebellion against God and who He is, Jesus is here on the cross between these two men. Verse 30, 29 rather, Those who passed by were yelling insults at Him, shaking their head and saying, He said He would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. You save yourself. Have you heard the things that He said? Did you interact with the way that he was talking to people? Did you hear what the Sanhedrin said when they were whispering in our midst? Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe. Then we'll believe. And up to this point, while being taunted and mocked, by everyone that he has encountered. Jesus has said little to nothing. No words. What is there to say? When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The darkness, in a twist of irony, it comes at the darkest point of the day. Rather, it comes at the brightest point of the day. Throughout the Old Testament, darkness over the land is judgment. Darkness over the land is letting the people know that there is something that is wrong. We, are, we have operated in a way that is in opposition to God. This is the final cup. What Jesus is about to take upon himself is the last cup. As we share in communion as a body of believers every week, we are really reflecting what we see in the Lord's Supper, which was an extension of the Jewish Passover meal. There is a last cup that is supposed to be drank. That's not, that doesn't take place in the Passover. Jesus takes that here. Let this pass from me. When Jesus prayed that in the garden, that's what this is. And as Jesus is on the cross, taking upon himself the sin, the punishment of sin on himself, he is digesting that. He has incurred God's wrath upon himself. The depths of our suffering, our mental suffering, our emotional suffering, our physical suffering, these things are the darkness of the world in which we live. And Jesus has taken them and absorbed them upon himself. The darkness of all the evil of the world has been poured out on the innocent. If you watch Jesus pray throughout the scriptures, you, especially in Mark, you see rhythms of the Old Testament. Whenever Jesus prays, he prays scripture. Regularly. When, Jesus, when he prays, he alludes to scripture. When I pray, I'm hoping that I get through traffic. But Jesus is praying over and over. And here, he echoes the teachings of scripture. And as he echoes that, God, why have you abandoned me. This is an allusion to the Psalms, of course, but this is also the reality of his moment right here on this cross with sin upon himself. Where are you? Where are you? 
And while every one of us in this room, if you are a believer in Jesus, every person on earth has wondered where God was, even those of us who are believers. And if you are a believer who would tell me that you never wonder where God is, you're lying. All of us have those moments where we wonder where God is. Jesus saying this is letting us know there is an answer. I have not left you because I abandoned Jesus on the cross. Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? There is an answer to that so that we could be made right with God. God offers us that hope. Scriptures work through the words of Jesus. Adrian Rogers, famous Baptist pastor, says this, the, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus took our sin, he took all the punishment that goes with that sin. And a part of that punishment is shame. For followers of Jesus... Whatever you're dealing with, whatever darkness you're wrestling with, whatever you're working through, there is nothing in regard to your sin that Jesus did not deal with on the cross. That's a promise that he makes to us. 35. Some of those were standing there. They said, see, he's calling out to Elijah. Because that's the expectation of the Passover meal. He's calling out to Elijah. It's almost as if they're mocking him yet again. He really thinks that he's going to fix this. More wine. Someone ran. They filled a sponge with sour wine. They fixed it on a stick. They offered him a drink. Let's see if Elijah comes down now. Christian writer Erica Anderson says this. When Jesus died on the cross, I was there because he died in my place. You get to the word, verse 38. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Where this curtain being torn in two communicates to us something supernatural is happening. When things are torn up at my house, they start low. Usually with a dog, Alder, Noli. I'm kidding, she's perfect. <laughs> this tear is from the top. Mark doesn't even tell us about the earthquake. Matthew does. But there's a lot of moving parts here. In the temple, there's this veil, this curtain that's there. And this veil is about the, the width of your hand. It's very thick. And it's blue at the top because blue is a representation of heaven. At the bottom it's red. And where these two things come to meet together, it's purple. It's this intertwining. It's this royalty that we may see. And it's also where heaven and earth they meet. Jesus in the passages says that he cries out. This isn't the first time we've seen the word cry in the book of Mark. We, we know what cry is around here. We do. Uh, we do. So many babies in our place, so many kids in our... We've all dealt with crying our entire lives. The word cry is only used twice in the book of Mark. 
At the very beginning in Mark chapter 1 verse 3, we hear of a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And here you are hearing Jesus cry out again. He cries here because preparing the way of the Lord comes to this place where the broken body of Jesus is right there. And when this takes place, the purpose of the temple has been absolutely removed. There's no, we no longer need yearly sacrifices. We no longer even need that temple. We don't need priests to go between us. We have a God who hears us. We have a God who hears of our anxiety and our guilt and our shame and our sinfulness. And we have a God who not only hears us, but in the person of Jesus, forgives that. Doesn't mean we don't deal with consequences, but it means that God, He knows His people, He cares for His people, and His love for His people is because you have been united with Him because Jesus' body was broken in your place. This supernatural aspect. The idea of Jesus crying out. Access to God is now open to all of us because Jesus has died. 39. When the centurion was standing opposite him, here, here, voice over John Wayne. And he saw that he breathed his last. Truly, this is the Son of God. That truly communicates earnestness to us as best as I can understand. While the rest of it is mocking, we have come to the conclusion of it. And this man, this, there's something different about this. In the Gospel of Mark, you see over and over that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. The kingly messianic secret, whenever it would be brought up in the Gospels, Jesus would tell them, just just hush, just hush. That wasn't because Jesus was embarrassed of who he was. God has a plan that's coming to its fulfillment and fruition. At the very beginning, this is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here you have this centurion. This must be the Son of God. King of Jews is right there. It's imprinted on a Roman gallop. They're crucifying him and for the world, at least their world to see, it's all right there. This is God's son. It starts there. The story of Jesus, the son of God. You get to the voice of his baptism. This is my son in whom I am pleased. The transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they hear, this is my son, listen to him. Caiaphas, the high priest, are you God's son? The crowds mocked him as if with the words of Caiaphas. And right here, you had this Roman guard who kills people the way that we kill mosquitoes standing there looking at Jesus. And he says, that I've watched the beating. I've seen the way that he was mocked. He has to be God. More than likely, Mark's audience was Roman. If this guy can believe, why not everybody else? The Son of Man has paved the way for the kingdom of God to be open to all who believe. Gentiles, us, all of you, can now know the Messiah. You can leave the kingdom of this world and unite with the kingdom of God. We are brought out of the kingdom and the ways of this world and the way that its rhythms work and we have been invited into rhythm of God in the person of Jesus. We have been invited to something altogether different and new. 
And for every one of us who are believers in Jesus and look at the brokenness of our world and have to say things like, that's just the way it is, that may be the way it is, but that's not the way that Jesus is and is no longer the way that you are. We've been invited into a better story, a bigger story, a more powerful story, full of life. And right here, we see that Jesus dies in our place in order to tell death to die. We don't have to be in union with our world because we have been united with the person of Christ. For the Roman, there's only... But it goes even further for this Roman gentleman. There is only one Son of God. And for him to even utter these words is a problem. For his entire life, the Son of God has been Caesar. And right here in Jesus, he sees that God has given him an option. And if you and I were to see Jesus today in physical form, in the book of Revelation, says we will, we'll see his body. The marks of his death are still there. His side is still pierced. His hands are still pierced. His feet are still pierced. His arms are still extended. They're not extended in, in crucifixion. They're extended to welcome those who are far from him. And he would say to you and he would say to me, abandon the kingdom of this world and choose the kingdom that I've made, made possible in, in my death and my resurrection. The king is inviting all of us to be united with him. That's the invitation that he gives. And if you're not a believer, he invites you to that. But if you are a believer... He invites you to remember to not forget that. It's so easy for us to find our patterns, to look like the patterns of our friends and neighbors. Would we be part of the kingdom of God? Would we see things in the way that Jesus seems to see things? Allowing His Word to give direction, His Spirit to guide us. The King is inviting all of us to live in a way that says we're united with Him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? In a few moments, as a body of believers at Grace, we are going to take of the cup. And we're going to eat of the bread. His body broken, his blood shed. That's our passage today. And if you are a believer, when you take this, you are saying that you have been united with the kingdom of God. That you are given your direction from the kingdom of God. That the king of God, that the king who is God declares for you how you are to live and breathe and act and react. So when you as a believer take this cup, just remember... Your sin was dealt with on the cross. Your shame was removed on the cross. Jesus does it all. For my non-believing friends in this room, one, thankful that you're here, and I invite you to trust Jesus.
that his death on the cross was him dying in your place. If you want to talk to me about that, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. If you don't want to talk in public, that's, that's fine. We can talk somewhere else. You can connect with us on email, send a pigeon, whatever you want to do. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow after Jesus. Father, work in our midst this morning as we continue to celebrate all that you have done for us in your crucified body. And let us know and let, remind us that we stand on the other side of that as part of the church that you have built. Like Rufus and Alexander. Let us see our place as kingdom people. In Jesus' name.